Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Last summer, I flew into town to interview to be the host of this show, and WPLN News Director Emily Sider took me on a quick tour of the city. Driving down West End Ave, she made it a point to roll by Centennial Park. The place was bustling, children playing tag, musicians quietly jamming, and an exercise group getting a workout in. Also, there was just folks enjoying the sun. I took in the scene and said to myself, okay, this can work. I really dug the park so much that when friends come to town, I always take them there, no matter the season. But Centennial Park wasn't always this way. Later this hour, we're going to explore this staple of Nashville, then and now. But first, there's a new traditionalist Methodist denomination brewing, and it's due in part to a schism over LGBTQ rights. My next guest has been closely following this development since September. Liam Adams is the religion reporter for The Tennessean, and he joins me now. Liam, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So let's just start with the basics. What is this new denomination? The new denomination is called the Global Methodist Church. And it officially launched on May 1st, so just a few weeks ago. The launch is a sort of uh, pivotal moment in this years-long debate and schism that's been happening within the United Methodist Church, uh, which is the largest mainline Protestant denomination in the country. So, like you said, this has been a long time coming. When did this really first begin? The debate came to a head in 2019. Um, The disagreements within the United Methodist Church, there are a number of them, but uh, some of the sort of most prominent were around the ordination of LGBTQ clergy and uh, clergy's ability to marry same-sex couples. And uh, that debate came to a head in 2019 for the uh, special session of what they call the General Conference Hmm. of the UMC when voting delegates make policy decisions for the denomination. After that uh, special session, uh, churches basically started to, that's when churches started to leave the UMC and... uh, United Methodists came together to draft a plan to essentially split the denomination and create a new traditionalist denomination. So that's um, what ended up happening a couple of weeks ago. That new denomination officially launched um, that had been in the works for a couple of years. So the United Methodist Church has a pretty massive following. What's the difference? What's the significance, tell me, in with this split? And what does that mean for congregants? Yeah, so the significance is that the Global Methodist Church, which is uh, calls itself traditionalist, will uh, hold more conservative stances on uh, things like sexuality and gender. What we're seeing is 
churches that are traditionalist within the UMC are leaving the UMC to join the Global Methodist Church. In 2020 and 2021, there were 132 churches that um, the word they use is disaffiliated mm. from the UMC. We won't know how many churches have disaffiliated this year until a few weeks from now when the regional governing bodies of the uh, sort of within the UMC meet and resolutions will be approved to allow more churches to disaffiliate the U from the UMC and join the, the Global Methodist Church. Okay, this is, as you mentioned, this is really a global matter, but I'm curious to why this is specific to Nashville. So Nashville is kind of a, a hub for the United Methodist Church. They have what they call these, these general agencies, and about half of the general agencies um, that serve various ministries within the UMC sort of throughout the world, half of those general agencies are based here in Nashville. So Nashville has a sort of, there's a presence of the international, you know, decision-making authority uh, within the UMC based here in Nashville. But then there's also pretty large presence of Methodist, United Methodist churches here. Um, just some, some data within the Tennessee Western Kentucky Conference. So that encompasses churches in middle in West Tennessee, there are uh, its directory had logged 918 churches, mm. and then the conference for East Tennessee, which is called the Holston Conference, uh, had 862 entries in its directory. So a lot of United Methodist churches in state. You've been covering this very, very closely. I wonder how do some of the people you spoke with in your reporting? How do they feel about all this? It's um, it's not only a sort of tricky. Uh, moment uh, sort of messy and complicated when it comes to the logistics of this new denomination launching and churches disaffiliating to join it. But it's also sort of an emotionally um, sort of charged moment. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I went up to Indianapolis for a conference of the organization that's kind of behind the formation of the new denomination. And um, there at, at the conference, sort of a lot of the uh, sentiment expressed was uh, frustration um, that United Methodist leaders, um, you know, are being unfair. Uh, that's what was sort of expressed at this conference. The, you know, word of being, being in exile, that was a phrase used mm. uh, frequently. So, um, and then there's, you know, sort of those who are choosing to stay with the denomination. Um, I've spoken with those who are more on the sort of the progressive end of the uh, United Methodist Church, some of the uh, United Methodist leaders here in Nashville, and just expressing sadness, you know, at this moment. And, um, you know, a lot of people describe it like a divorce. Mm. People may look at this as a simple fight over LGBTQ representation. I wonder, is there, is it, is there more to it than that? There is. And um, the leaders within the traditionalist um, sort of denomination and community say it's not just over sexuality and gender. Um, 
they say it's about sort of larger beliefs about the Bible and theology. Um, but at the same time, the debates around the ordination of LGBTQ clergy and uh, whether clergy can marry same-sex couples, that's really what drove the um, sort of debate in 2016, 2019, and kind of carved the path to where we are now. You've been following this closely. What can we expect next from your reporting? So what we're going to see in the, in a lot of ways, we are in the middle, or some might even say the sort of start of this schism, um, mm. because the earlier I mentioned this plan to uh, essentially split the denomination. That plan was supposed to be voted on at the general conference of the UMC in 2020, but that general conference continues to get postponed due to sort of uh, travel restrictions for international travelers with COVID-19. And so uh, the this general conference where this plan is going to be voted on is scheduled in 2024. So for the next couple years, we're going to kind of see this steady flow of churches uh, leaving the UMC um, and joining the new Global Methodist Church. But then there are also other churches that are waiting to leave the UMC until this plan is voted on in 2024. Um, so this is going to be kind of drawn out for a couple years, but we should also we'll also see sort of things pop up in the next few weeks when these regional uh, you know, governing bodies, these annual conferences meet, and you will see voting delegates approve resolutions that allow churches uh, to disaffiliate for the churches that have recently sought to do that. A lot can happen between now and 2024. Good thing you're keeping an eye on it. Liam Adams is religion reporter for The Tennessean. Liam, thanks again for being with us and for sharing your reporting. Thanks for having me. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're heading out to Centennial Park. Do you spend time in Centennial Park? Share your stories and questions by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. If you're someone who's spent a lot of time in Centennial Park over the years, you've probably noticed the Picnic Pavilion. Maybe you've even used it yourself for a grill out. It's a large, roofed shelter known for having some people who stay all hours of day and night. But recently that changed. Sometime in the past few months, the picnic tables were removed and the structure was fenced off and the overhead lights were turned up. One of our listeners noticed and emailed us earlier this month. Sammy Mangan walks by the pavilion regularly. He lives in the area and tells us he feels concerned about what this will mean for the folks who use this space every day. So last Friday, we sent our producer, Tasha A.F. Lemley, to get a better sense of what's going on at the pavilion and who spends time with there now? The pavilion? Well, it's totally empty now. 
And I sat there on the concrete ground for more than an hour waiting to talk to anyone who came by. No one ever came in to use the pavilion. So I popped over to a gas station just down the street. And that's where I meet JB. He's holding the door for patrons and hoping for tips. That pavilion at the park, it's actually been a big part of his life since he was a kid. I always had somebody who lived across the street in the building. So boom, we come out, come out the door. You know what I'm saying, mom upstairs visiting or whatever, boom, we hit the pavilion, you know what I'm saying? Because that's where all our friends were, our uncles were, you know, family, community. But JB says now he's no longer allowed there. So he and people he knows, they've moved to other nearby spots. They kicked us out. They took a lot of, a lot of happiness, a lot of shelter, you know what I'm saying, comfort. Probably a little underhanded things too, but you know, a lot of people are dependent on their place, you know what I'm saying, just to survive. The underhanded things he's referring to, well, they're at least one part of why there's been a major change. He says people would sometimes get drunk under the pavilion and use drugs. I'm one of the ones who treated it like a home, you know what I'm saying? So I'm not gonna have no messiness, no distractions, so nobody bothered me. Before it was fenced off and cleared out, JB says he lived there for nearly two years before the change. He could test the rules, but he doesn't plan to. No, I don't sleep up there no more. You know what I'm saying? I respect them, you know what I'm saying? They have a reservation on it, boom, you know. I could be a jackass, you know what I'm saying, do everything right. Right off the edge of the pavilion, right in the grass, but you know. I talked with a park's representative. She told me the change wasn't just because of concerns over crime, violence, and damage. There's also demand for more space where fitness classes could take place. It's now reservation and permit only. But in the off hours, technically anyone can use it. So far, JB says he's seen at least one fitness class a couple times a week there. Otherwise... Dead space. Metro Parks wasn't able to make a representative available to join us today. But I'm joined by now by a photographer and outreach worker who's been frequenting and documenting the pavilion for the last 30 years. Susan Adcock, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you with us. So tell me, what first led you to the pavilion 30 years ago? Well, I was I was working on the corner of 25th uh, and Charlotte at the time and um, sort of had this idea that I wanted to be a photographer. I was very green and... Uh, spent some time in the park on my lunch hour in different places uh, and just ran into people that happened to be there at the time under the pavilion, in fact. How have you been able to make the pavilion a consistent part of your work? Well, I haven't. Now, there was a short time there that I spent, and then there was a long break before I started 30 years later, 25 years later, to do outreach. And it was just by happenstance that I ended up being the West Side Outreach Worker for Open Table Nashville and uh, gravitated toward there because uh, there were more people there than just sort of on the street and doorways and things. So I know I could always meet people and find them where they were at there. So you took photos of people who were out there, right? I did. So this is a pretty sizable shelter, pretty big. Sure. How has it served folks you know, in the area over years? Uh, for those, for that particular community of folks, it's been a sort of a social gathering place. It's been a place where they could find community. Um, 
where they could also find shelter and things that they needed, um, you know, if they needed to a friend to watch their stuff while they went to an appointment, that, you know, folks were always there. So I think there was an element of safety there that also drew, drew people. Um, and they uh, always, you know, just counted on somebody to be there that they knew. In your time as an outreach worker, did you make any connections that are memorable to you, working with folks out there? Many. It was really one of the great privileges of my life, I think, to get to know and work with those folks. Um, I have so many stories. Uh, there was uh, a, a guy that used to be out there. They called him Bill Bill, who, when uh, he got bored, he would pick up litter all around the pavilion and even throughout the park. And... Uh, he was just such a fun guy. He would sort of give me the rundown on how much litter he'd picked up that day when mm. I showed up. And uh, one day he had uh, saved a bunch of paper dolls that he found on the ground and came out from under the pavilion and said, hey, Miss Susan, I want to give you these. And I said, why? And he said, because they're just so cute, I couldn't throw them away. <laughs> so, You know, Susan, from your perspective, what, what challenges are, does the park system, what challenges are they facing when dealing with this issue? Uh, you know, I I feel like a lot of times uh, the folks that are in that area are kind of misrepresented because people don't know them very well, and they sort of have ideas about what's going on under there and how that all plays out. Um, I know there hasn't been a lot of uh, the folks that are are over there are kind of contained. They're not really bothering people in the park, necessarily. They aren't asking people for money or anything like that, usually. And so I know there's uh, people are, it's not without complications. Definitely people are sometimes intoxicated or mm -hmm. uh, just need a place to lie down and sleep. Uh, and for the most part, JB was right when he said that he'll be respectful and everyone else will be respectful also. They've in the past, when they've had the pavilion reserved, um, someone usually comes along and says, hey, at 2 o'clock, we're going to have a family reunion or birthday party. And they clear out, and they'll go sort of across the street or in another other spots and hang out for that time. And usually, the folks that have reserved the pavilion are also very respectful. Mm -hmm. uh, and they'll you know, leave some leftovers, maybe, or talk to the folks after they're done. So... You know, seeing all these recent changes at the pavilion, what do you make of that? You know, I feel like there were folks in that pavilion 30 years ago, and there will be 30 years from now. Uh, regardless of the sort of strategy to, to move people around, that's been happening all these years, and it will continue to happen. And And if there's one thing I know about that population, it's that... They're really resilient, and they're uh, they're used to it. They're sort of used to being pushed around. You know, all this work that you've done, 30 years, when you see these folks who relied so heavily on this shelter and get displaced, how does that make you feel? I, I feel concerned for them. Uh, for them uh, I feel that they don't get the care they need or sort of the consideration that they need sometimes. They're... They're part of that cult, that park life, just as much as, as the other people who visit the park are. Uh, 
again, that's not to say that it's not complicated sometimes, but it's not also not specific to the pavilion or to the park. Uh, these these sorts of problems are happening outside in the city also, and so to have that little respite place where people can can kind of be together, I think is a is a really healthy thing, and I think they'll just sort of move outside of the pavilion if they have to and create a space outside mm-hmm. until it's until they feel safe to go back. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We've been talking about Centennial Park. We were inspired to do this episode after we got an email from a listener. He was concerned that the recent changes in the park's pavilion were are excluding some of the folks who have called the park home for a long time. As we've just been hearing, it's complicated, and the park's officials have been working to find a good balance between welcoming everyone, also keeping the space safe for everyone. Historically, Centennial Park hasn't always been for everyone. Back in the day, there was a public swimming pool in the park. It opened in 1932, for whites only. Then about 30 years later, two black students decided to go for a swim. But they were turned away. Kwame Leo Lillard was one of them. TSU historian Dr. Lee Williams asked Kwame about that day many years later. So I remember one Sunday, I pulled him aside and said, Kwame, man, what really happened at the pool that day? And he talked about how he was talking to Mr. Walker. He said, hey, let's go swimming. I said, where? At the pool at Centennial Park. <laughs> and, and for me, that reveals just how important young people are to any type of movement that you engage in. You know, you need some folks that are a little bit older that might be ready to think things through, but oftentimes we need young folks who are impulsive and say, okay, we need to do this and do this right now. My next guest has been digging into this history. She even started a blog called Art in the Bathhouse after she learned about that day in 1961. Nadine Schillingford, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. Okay, so Nadine, tell us what happened on that day. Um, 1961? Yes. So, um, so as you said, there was a bathhouse um, built, and over time it was called a swimming pool. Um, so that building was mainly specifically for whites only. Right, so at the time there were multiple pools. There were about twenty-three pools in Nashville. Um, two of them were assigned for black black Americans, um, and um, on that particular day, those two people, including um, Kwame Lillard, decided to go for a swim. And um, once they got there, police were called and everything, um, and they basically shut down the pools. Um, not just that pool, but they shut down all 23 pools in Nashville on that day. And the pools remained closed. Um, the NAACP tried to um, reopen it. Um, the official answer when people asked about why it was closed was that it was closed for financial reasons. Um, but at the time, they were making other improvements on the park, on parks in, just in general. Um, so we know that that wasn't the main the main reason um so the pools were closed down and basically that particular pool remained closed forever so you were inspired by the pool's history what did you feel as you learned more about what happened um i 
at first, you know, when I first saw the big um, hole in the back of the art center, um, I was inspired to go look more and dig into it. But what I found was that there was so much history that most people don't know here in Nashville. And it also made me see that even if the building was built for a specific purpose, it was built as a swimming pool, a bathhouse, um, and we have that history of, you know, segregation and, uh, you know, just hatred in general. Mm -hmm. Um, But towards the 70s, when we reopened as an art center, it opened up opportunities for many people like me who love art to just get into it. And, um, you know, for me, it changed my life going starting to go to that center because basically I was able to connect with more artists. I was able to get my art, you know, going. And I think that's that's a good thing. It's it's a nice change um, in that it's no longer looked at as a symbol of hatred, but you know, an opening community for others. What did you what what did you do next after you learned more about this history? Um built the blog. Um, I actually started digging more into it because I just heard that it was a a swimming pool. And it's very unusual for a swimming pool to be just there, used as a courtyard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started digging more, um, went into the Tennessean archives, um, looked up um, different articles on, on the pool and found everything going back as far as 1932 with the plans, the dimensions and everything of the pool. Um, and I actually just started, I started speaking more about it. Um, I reached out to people, uh, to Kwame. I didn't actually get to speak to him, but um, it became real. It became real, and I started speaking to people about what was the history of the, of the, the area um, and just shared the news. Josh Wagner is also with us. He's director of the Art Center at Centennial Park. Josh, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So the 50th anniversary of the Art Center is this year. And it's time to celebrate. But you recognize that something needed to happen before the party back in March. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, as Nadine was talking about this complicated history uh, of this uh, Art Center space, um, really was little known to a lot of people in Nashville. And I felt that it wouldn't be appropriate for us to celebrate the 50 years of the Art Center without shedding more light on the historical events that happened here and to really be truthful about the history of the space and kind of how we get to enjoy this beautiful community and this beautiful art space now uh, without talking more authentically about its origins. So what did you do? I began to talk to Parks Administration. I began to do a little bit more research uh, my, on my own. I uh, began speaking uh, with Nadine. Uh, we had hosted uh, Nadine a few years ago in the gallery where she was able to uh, display uh, an interactive art piece uh, based on her blog, Art in the Bathhouse. So a lot of uh, personal interviews with historians, professors from local universities, and uh, trying to tell the story as best as I could. So what transpired was building some momentum around getting a historical marker placed. So on March 23rd of this year, uh, one month exactly before we celebrated our 50th anniversary, we were able to unveil a historical marking with a ceremony in the park. Phyllis Hildreth was there for that dedication ceremony back in March. She said that there may be some painful 
monuments that we can't tear down. But our city had a hidden one, which is why she started a journey to have the pool recognized for what it is. Let's listen. Tentatively, a few of us dipped our toes in the waters of truth and history to begin to tell the story of what happened in this place. Four and a half years later, we come to thank the Lillard family, to thank the Walker family, to thank the Gentry family, and all other families that knew a place and tried to press their way here. We thank you for not letting the story die. We also come today not to congratulate, but perhaps to encourage Nashville Metropolitan Government for making this belated and modest down payment on a restorative act of truth and liberation. Josh, to you, how does this honor the past? I think that it marks the place and the events that happened here. Uh, Kwame, Leo Lillard, and Matthew Walker Jr. are both named on the historical marker. I think it puts real people and connects them to the events of this place so that when people come to the art center and they see kind of how it's operating today, uh, they can learn about the history. And I think the residents of Nashville can appreciate you know, perhaps how far we've come. You know, obviously we still have a ways to go together, but by being honest, I think we can really get somewhere. Nadine, how would you like to see this facility serve the future of our city? Um, I would like to see um, more diversity. Um, even now we are open to everyone. Um, I've met some really great friends there, um, male and female. But even during our usual um, receptions and ex exhibitions, we don't see as very as much African Americans um, in there. Um, so that would be something that would be uh, great to see more African Americans actually exhibiting their work at the arts at the um, art center. That is artist Nadine Shingleford. I want to. She was also joined by Josh Wagner, director of the Centennial Arts Center, and also thanks to Susan Adcock for coming on to the show. Really appreciate having you all on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're taking a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about Centennial Park today and what's the park's popular musician's corner mean to our community over the years. Share your stories about Centennial Park by tweeting us at this is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today, our show is all about Centennial Park, then and now. Now, as we've been hearing, the park hasn't always been a place for everyone, but there's one event designed to change that. It's called Musician's Corner, and it's one of the more diverse and affordable music events in town. Joining me now is the organizer of the event, Justin Barnum. He's also VP 
Justin Branham, pardon me. He's also the VP of Programming at Centennial Park Conservancy. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Justin, tell me, how did Musicians Corner first come about? It first come, came about um, by the community coming together and I think wanting a free space for musicians to perform. There was a board member on Centennial Park Conservancy's team that had experienced Speaker's Corner in London, which is um, kind of a monument for free speech in London. And he thought, this is Music City. We should have something like that for musicians. And so it started as kind of a small grassroots operation. And at this point, it's grown to be kind of more of a festival. How did you become involved? Um, well, I used to attend it way back in the day before I was involved and was just a huge fan of it. And um, I actually played the first year as a musician, strangely enough, and nice. knew some people who were involved in um, organizing it. And an opportunity came up for me to get involved more officially. And I came on originally in kind of a small role and um, have now kind of evolved to running the organization or running the program. So as you saw it during its inception, was it just an energy there that was infectious and made you and others just want to not only be there, but become a part of the mission? Oh, man, absolutely. I think there was really um, an indescribable feeling when you were there. You're like, this is why I moved to Nashville. You know, seeing musicians collaborate, seeing people experience music with their friends and with their whole family. Um, and just soaking it in, it, it felt like, um, you know, the reason people fall in love with Nashville and, you know, it's really what made me want to be a part of it. That sounds like the true definition of Music City. So, yeah. you know, as you became involved in working in this capacity that you are now, tell me what type of artists and genres do you seek out to play there? Yeah, um, something that's become really a pillar of our values is ensuring that the music represented on the stage um, is reflective of the Nashville community. And so, of course, we have country music here and we're famous for that, but there is such a broad music scene. And I think there's a lot of genres out there that don't get love. So one thing that we have done is try to make sure that we are showcasing everything. So um, on Memorial Day weekend, we have a Grammy award-winning reggae artist. We um, kicked off our series with a soul artist. We have plenty of rock and really everything in between. And I think that's one thing that makes our event really special. So tell me, why is it important for you all to show love to multiple genres and to bring in more diversity for the people who attend to absorb? Yeah, that that's a great question. You know, we consider ourselves a community concert series and we want it to be a space that the entire community wants to come and a space where the entire community feels welcome and is engaged. And I think the only way to do that is to ensure that there's a little bit of something for everyone. You know, there's, um, you may not like this artist because it's a rock artist and you're really into soul, but the next artist is a soul artist and so forth. So by having a multi-genre lineup, it allows us to make ensure that the audience is engaged um, regardless of their interests. So tell me, you mentioned the community. What's their response been to the events? Well, it's, it's been great. I mean, um, I've heard from so many people who 
you know, have told me the story of coming to Musician's Corner on a happenstance before they moved to town and realized that's why they want to move here. Um, I think it's become a tradition for a lot of families. Um, I'm a new father myself and congratulations. Having, um, thank you very much. And having a young son, I'm, I'm not going out to the clubs as often as I used to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I now see the value of a family-friendly show that happens during the day. And I think that that's um, something that's really special about our event, that families can come together and experience music together without um, there being a need for a babysitter, without a cover charge. And we even have a kids area presented by Kidsville, which is a program um, from our organization as well. So kids can um, play and learn and explore and also just get their wiggles out. Which event and or artists artist really stood out to you the most since you've been involved? <laughs> There's honestly so many. Um, one of my favorite performances I think of all time though is years ago we had Sierra Leone's Refugee All-Stars which is a reggae band of guys that originated in Sierra Leone and wound up in the U.S. and Canada. And they were incredible. And it was the first time that we showcased reggae at our event. And I was kind of wondering, what are people going to think of this? You know, is it going to go over well? And as soon as they busted into their first song, I saw so many people get up and rush to the stage and start dancing. And standing side stage watching that it was a reminder this is why i do this um it was a really cool moment if you're just tuning in this is nashville and i'm your host khalil lake we're talking about centennial park and musicians corner and an event where my next guest performs gustavo moradel is a musician who's been playing the musicians corner since 2018 gustavo Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me today. Pleasure, pleasure. So tell me, how'd you get started playing gigs at Musician's Corner? Wow, so it feels like it's, it was a while ago that I reached out to, um, in the website, I submitted some of my music and then Justin reached out to me and I played it for the first time, I believe in 2018. And it was a really lovely opportunity to basically be welcomed into the Nashville community. I moved here in 2017 from Los Angeles and so that was a really warm welcoming and ever since it's been lovely and it's pretty much one of my favorite uh, places to play locally here in Nashville. You know I know it's always helpful for a musician to get a gig playing for new crowds. I wonder though how has playing at Musicians Corner benefited you? It has benefited me in so many ways because it's given me the opportunity to showcase my songs into a different kind of crowd that maybe might not be uh, necessarily always exposed to the music I do. I do mostly Latin alternative music and the gigs that I do here locally are are mostly in places that uh, are mainly uh, directed towards Hispanics or people who speak Spanish. And so playing at Musician's Corner has definitely given me uh, a, an open door to a different kind of crowd, especially local uh, a local crowd that uh, supports all kinds of music, and it's been really welcoming to me. What's the response been from the crowd? It's been really lovely. I've gotten to do so many cool things due to playing at Musician's Corner. I've met so many incredible people. Last year, or in 2020, I got to go to the Caverns, which is a really cool venue in East Tennessee, and I got to play, like... 
it, for a really cool event and they met me at Musicians Corner. They saw me play there and that's just one example. I've gotten a lot of really cool opportunities and I've met incredible people, including Justin, uh, which I'm a huge fan of him. And um, so, yeah, it's been really lovely. I also did uh, the Bluebird Cafe. I did a writer's round nice. and that was also mainly because of uh, what I've done at Musicians Corner as well. So Justin, is that one of your goals to give up and coming artists like Gustavo a public platform? Absolutely. I mean, one of my one of my favorite things about Musicians Corner too is just seeing sort of the pathway of artists that played, you know, at some point in our early years of our 12 years of existence who are now playing these huge shows and you know, I think of even artists like St. Paul and the Broken Bones and Chris Stapleton and Margot Price, who played very early in their careers and now are selling out stadiums. Like that is honestly an amazing thing to see. And not necessarily to take credit for the success, but just to um, play a small role in artists' careers growing is um, a, a neat thing to be a part of. Don't be ashamed of making calling yourself a tastemaker. If you put these people on before everybody else did, you, that means you have an eye and an ear for talent. Gustavo, Gustavo, let me ask you, you said you moved here in 2017 from Los Angeles. Correct. Did you have any reservations about moving here to Nashville? I was absolutely frightening <laughs> to move to the South, um, but I had moved around. I'm originally from Honduras, so I've moved around throughout my life. I crossed the border when I was uh, 11, so I'm used to just going from place to place. But coming to Nashville, I expected, I thought that it was going to be different, you know, like most of us who move here who have not experienced the real Nashville. And so it surprised me completely with its culture, its food, its people. And to know that we have more than 100,000 Latinos in Nashville and uh, also the biggest Kurdish population in the world outside of Germany and Kurdistan, uh, that was a pretty cool thing to see. And uh, I'm completely in love with the city now. So here to stay, hopefully. Have you had opportunities to, you know, really work with uh, people from the Latino community out here musically? I, absolutely. I've gotten to write uh, songs with Grammy Award winning uh, artists and recorded in legendary studios as well. And honestly, everything has happened so naturally, which I was really surprised because Los Angeles, you kind of had to hustle more and just put mm -hmm. yourself out there. Mm -hmm. And I also just became a father, so I don't have a lot of energy or time to, you know, just go out there and meet people. But everything I've done, it just happens naturally and, you know, on force. So I, I, I really feel so lucky to get to do this. Uh, music thing and also just to get to be around so many incredible talented people. Congratulations on being a new Thank father you. to you, my friend. So do you feel like Musicians Corner opened up other parts of the city to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I Like I said earlier, it welcomed me the best possible way and it also welcomed my music and something I told Justin, one of the first things I said to him, my music is in Spanish, is that okay? And he just like politely smiled and say, of course, <laughs> that's what we invited you. And so that was a really cool thing to do because I felt really insecure. At first I was like, should I sing my English songs? But I feel more comfortable doing Spanish songs because that's my favorite language. Uh, and I write mostly in Spanish. So that was really, really cool to, to get to do a Musician's Corner and to get to play my songs in front of so many people. Justin, how does what Gustavo shared with us, how does that resonate with you? And it just makes me smile. Like uh, to be a part of sort of connecting um, people in Nashville, you know, I think that's what we aspire to do. And I think 
that's truly what makes Nashville such a unique place is that there are so many people here, they want to be connected. You know, it's not competitive, it's collaborative. And to be able to help facilitate that makes me feel really great. So what now? What can we look forward to from Musicians Corner for the rest of the year? Yeah, we're currently programming right now. We have shows every Friday and Saturday in May and June. Um, We're doing a special Thursday night with the symphony in June as well. And we're doing a special three-day weekend over Memorial Day weekend with the addition of Sunday. And then we'll take a break um, over the summer months when it's very hot. And we'll return in September once it cools down with the series every Friday night. Um, And then we'll have a artisan market um, in October as well. So we have a full calendar and people can find out on musiciansporner.com. Any big time names we should know? Um, that is a good question. I mean, um, yeah, our lineup is a lot of buzzy artists that live in Nashville or in the region. Um, we have John Paul White, uh, formerly of the Grammy Award winning Civil Wars. Um, we have Jeremy Ivey, Will Hogue. Um, we kicked off our series with Devin Gilfillian, and last week we had Becky Mancari and Adia Victoria. It's it's a good mixture of a lot of folks. This weekend we'll have Joshua Headley on Friday and Zachary Williams of the Lone Bellow on Saturday. Okay. Okay. Now, Gustavo, I understand you have a song you want to play for us. I would love to. Can you tell us briefly about it? Yes, it's called La Montaña, and it, it was written about my hometown, about a kid that left and started to miss home. It's about, you know, that place that we all feel closer to, to the people we love. All right. All right. Well, take it away. Here is Gustavo Moradel performing La Montaña. Vengo desde la montaña a la ciudad, busco oportunidad. Alguien dijo que aquí podría ser feliz, que mis penas no tendrían espacio en mi canción. Veo que no es así, la realidad esconde algo más. Todo lo que yo soñaba, creo que no será. Quiero regresar a la montaña. La montaña. ¿Dónde está mi Sopla libre donde el colibrí cante su canción sin preocuparse que dirá. Donde el ajetreo es poco y los árboles bailan sin parar cuando sale el sol en la montaña. La montaña. Mi hogar, donde tengo 
my man. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. Thank you. Absolutely beautiful. Wow. Real quick, I've got a couple seconds. What inspired you to write that? I mean, you told me, but we get into it real quick. For yeah, me. I'm from a small town that sits uh, near a mountain. And as a kid, I used to ride my bicycle and always saw the background, this beautiful mountain with trees and uh, a slow-paced lifestyle. And when I was in L.A., I missed that. So <laughs> I sat down and wrote that song, Missing That Sentiment. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, we'll we will include the link to mu- to Musicians Corner calendar and the of the events on today's show post. You need to check it out. Thank you to musician Gustavo Moradell and Justin Branham, organizer of Musicians Corner, for joining us today. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Dr. Lee Williams, Cindy Polite, Jackie Jones, and John Tumenelo. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.